This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Nikki Gemmell, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. It is so wonderful to be here with you. We seem to get together every couple of years, don't we? We do, we do, whenever a book has come out. But this one has taken quite some time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me introduce you. Nikki is the international best-selling author of 13 novels, including The Bride Strip Bear, and I remember the day that came out, and four works of nonfiction, and most recently her memoir of her mother's death after. Her books have been translated into 22 languages. Her distinctive writing has gained her critical and popular acclaim. In France, she's been described as a female Jack Kerouac. And the French literary magazine, Leah, included her in a list of what it called the 50 most important writers in the world, those it believed would have significant influence on literature of the 21st century. Wow. Wow. And she's right here. She's right here today with us. Well, she's by Zoom with us today. Uh, We're talking about her new novel, The Ripping Tree. It examines the darkness at the heart of early colonisation. It's unsettling. It's truly unsettling. It's audacious. It is thrilling and unputdownable. And do you know, I felt that it was new for you. Absolutely. It's a complete departure. I'm one of those writers, Cheryl, I, I just like challenging myself and trying something different all the time. About 10 years ago, I was leaving London. I'd lived there for 15 years and I was coming back to Australia and my agent who's in London, he just said to me, look, what are you going to do next, Gemmel? Because that's what he calls me, Gemmel. And I said, you know what? I just want to write something about my own country that I deeply love. I just love Australia so much. And I'd had a series of books that had all been set in the UK and London. And I just thought, I just want to immerse myself in Australia again and write a love letter to Australia, but also, you know, audaciously and provocatively ask a few questions there, that kind of thing. And somehow through the process of 10 years of writing, it turned into a thriller, an historical thriller. Do you want to share with the readers a little about what it's about? Because I've got some big questions around it. Okay. It's it's about a stranger in a strange land. It's a woman who is shipwrecked off the coast of Australia. It could be, you know, off the coast of Tasmania or down in Victoria or in WA. It could be anywhere really in Australia. It's, it's, it's unspecified. Basically, she's shipwrecked. She's the only one. She's discovered by an Indigenous person who takes her to a house on the coast owned by a very illustrious family. So this woman ends up on the doorstep 
of this house after a very, very traumatic experience and assumes, oh, my goodness, I'm saved. You know, this is wonderful and what an amazing place this is. But she gradually realises over the course of seven days what she thinks is saving her is actually putting her life in danger. She's a young woman in colonial Australia who's uh, very outspoken. She has a voice. She says what she thinks. If she thinks something's unfair or something's odd, she's going to say it. And that gets her in a lot of trouble. So I was thinking of um, kind of page, unsettling page turner thrillers, a bit like uh, Henry James, The Turn of the Screw or the film Get Out, if you've seen mm. that. Basically, it's, it's about someone who's trapped and gradually realises that their world is closing in on them and they have to escape. And it becomes a question of can they get out of here? Can they escape the clutches? of these people who they got completely wrong, who aren't what she thought they were. So it's a thriller to try and find out, you know, what on earth happens. I wanted to write a page to Cheryl. I feel as though you've been very brave to set it in a time during colonisation in Australia at this time. I think that that subject's really quite huge at the moment and so it should be. And we're all talking about it. We're using language like cultural appropriation. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about firstly the research because I I find even in recording podcasts, like if I'm doing my research in talking to you, I learn something new all the time. And sometimes I'm shocked. I mean, I spoke recently to a beautiful Indigenous man who was as part of the Stolen Generation And my view on that was, and this is how much I knew about it, was that these children, these babies, newborn babies were stolen from their mother to be put into white families so they can be like us, apparently. But no, a lot of them were put into institutions and that just so did not make sense to me. I was so deeply, deeply moved and saddened by that. I mean, it was bad enough, but this was even worse. I know. I feel like there is so much in Australians, Australia's history that is just appalling. It's that, appalling, you know, isn't it? We, we don't know about it. We're, we're slowly discovering what happened there. As I was doing the research, I did a lot of reading and I had um, a wonderful Indigenous academic read over the whole manuscript and he was great and he he loved the book, really appreciated it. He, you know, told me a few things to tweak. They were relatively minor things in there. But I got the feeling from him, I can't speak for him, but I got the feeling from him that these stories do need to be unearthed. And that's something, because there's horror at the heart of this house and these people. And they're not based on historical fact, but there are records, oral records of things that have happened that I have alluded to in the book. And by all means, I haven't tried to put myself in the shoes of Indigenous characters at all. The, the story of the ripping tree is framed, the narrative is a story within a story. It's a grandmother telling her grandchildren the story of her early years. So it's from her perspective, a white woman's perspective. She says in the book at the end, I did not understand the Indigenous world that was in front of me 
but I absolutely respect these people and that's where this story comes from. And that was really my philosophy of the book too. You know, I don't Mm. understand but I respect and these stories around what happened in early Australia colonisation, they need to come out. Mm. We need to know about them. Yeah, we really do. I mean, I wonder sometimes, are we learning from them? I think we are. You know, there's a question at the moment, which is also alluded to in the book, about uh, there were bone collectors. There were awful people in colonial Australia who would, for profit, collect the bones and sacred objects of Indigenous people. There are the most appalling stories about what has gone on there, records kept, Mm. um, meticulous records. And to this day, you know, the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford in the UK, the British Museum, European Museums, research institutes, as I talk, and it's a big issue at the moment about the repatriation of these um, Indigenous remains and laying them to rest. So in a way, what I wanted to write about was the story of how some of these institutions came to get those bones, all wrapped up within a thriller and all the rest of it. (laughs) I wonder, uh, in reading it too, I wondered whether, is there any point that we become more comfortable with how would I say this, that we're atoning ourselves? Is that the right word? Are we doing enough? Is recognition and understanding and retelling the stories enough? I I don't think so, but I think we are on the journey. And the fact that we open our hearts to understanding and to listening, I think listening is so important. We listen to what Indigenous people have to say. We take on board what they have to say and we accept it and we look back in a forensic way back into the darkness of our past. And I think that's a good thing because I feel like, you know, there's a deep wound at the heart of Australia about stolen land and, you know, what was done to obtain that land and keeping Indigenous people from their land. And it feels like a great injustice to me, a great unfairness. And for me as a novelist, I wanted to write about that in a new and provocative perhaps way. You know, I I like with all my books from The Bride Strip there, you know, after my book about uh, my mother and euthanasia, I always write to understand. I always write with a question, something that I feel... Not with the answers, yeah. Yeah, I want the answers and, you know, whether that's through my fiction or my non-fiction. So this is just something else that I feel like I need to understand more. I've been um, a crazy podcaster and I'm also crazy about Barack Obama. So I've been listening to Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen. Yes. That new podcast that's out. Actually, I just did a one sit listen, right? Or one walk listen, if you like. Uh, But one of the subjects that came up was how slavery has defined America and made the people who it is and what it is now. And it really got me thinking about Australia. Do you think that that's what we did to Indigenous people has defined this country? Absolutely still does. I feel like there's guilt at the heart of so much in terms of Indigenous relations. Mm. We can't move forward. I feel like, you know, I look at New Zealand and I feel like they are so much further along the path than we are in terms of relationships with their um, traditional owners, their Indigenous people. For us, we have a long way to go 
and my book, The Ripping Tree, is part of the conversation. But I didn't want the book to be just about that as well. The more I write, I've been writing now for <laughs> 30 years and I'm still learning and, you know, I feel like what I'm learning mainly is the importance of narrative drive. I was much more experimental when I was younger. And in fact, The Ripping Tree started out much more experimental, a more difficult read. And over 10 years, it was like, I actually just want people to turn the page. And that's something that's incredibly hard for a writer to do is to keep the reader engaged and for me that's been a learning process over decades so that's where the ripping tree has come from too there are many many strands to the writing of it I want to go back because you as you know this podcast is about where the author comes from stories behind the story so your story to writing so tell me a little bit about how you came to writing and let's get to your first book that was published Okay. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, and there's been another shiver out recently and I've yes. had to say, Nikki, Nikki, they've stolen your title. Is there copyright yeah. on a title? And it's like, no, 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 there's no, no, anyone can take that title and and good luck to them, basically. You know, there's nothing I can do about it. So basically, Cheryl, I came from a very non reading non-bookish family. My dad was a coal miner. My mum was a coal miner's daughter. They both left school at 16 because that was what you were meant to do. On the shelves at home when I was a kid, we had Linda Goodman's Sun Signs, maybe a Judith Krantz and the World Book Encyclopedias. And that was... Essentials. (laughs) Yeah. And I had two older brothers that were into trail bikes and redback spider farms in ice cream containers in the carpet. And so I was a real tomboy and books could have very easily passed me by. But I had some amazing teachers at Kiraville Public School in Wollongong and they produced a school magazine miraculously and I had my first piece of writing published when I was about eight. It was this really crappy, crappy poem about um, a circus But to see my name in that little school magazine was just like, wow, maybe I can do this. And then um, uh, when I was in year six, I was ducks of my school and I was given a book voucher for a bookshop. And I can remember my dad, he was like, well, I don't know what to do with this. So he took me down to this amazing bookstore in Wollongong called Coddington's. And this legendary woman used to run it. And he went up to the counter of Coddington's and he handed over the book voucher. And he said, look, my daughter's just won this from her school. Can you recommend a book that she could have forever, that she could keep forever in memory of this occasion. And the the wonderful lady just looked straight at me and she said, I know exactly what I'm going to give you. And she went up to the back of the bookstore and she slipped out this beautiful leather-bound volume and I'd never seen a book covered in leather before with gold embossed writing, slipped out this beautiful copy of Jane Eyre. Oh, and wow. that was the book that was purchased through that book voucher. And then I still remember my dad, so proud, walking me down um, the Crown Street Mall in Wollongong and we found this little key booth, an engraving booth, and they could do gold embossing. So on the, on the front of Jane Eyre, he just, Dad got my name embossed and the year. And that book 
I still have by my bedside table and I read it and read it and read it and I was just transported by Jane's story, that line, reader, he married me. I still get this little lurch in my heart, kind of a sob of relief every time I read that line. But that kind of set me on the path of, oh, if I could just do this in some small way, if I could just write, you know, I I love that kind of power of kind of reaching out a hand to a reader and holding them and saying, come with me, trust me, and I will take you on a journey with me. And so that's what I've tried to do, you know, from my late teens, early 20s onwards, I didn't get my first novel, Shiver, published until I was 30, but before then I had a very big apprenticeship with short stories. And I was, um, from my teens onwards, I was sending them out to literary magazines. I, I, my philosophy was saturation bombardment. I would just send them out everywhere, hoping someone somewhere would pick them up. And one of the first people to pick up one of my short stories when I was 19 was Les Murray in his literary magazine. And Wow. Um, yeah, wow. He sent me the most beautiful acceptance card, and um, which I've still got. And I think writing, Cheryl, is all about confidence. And it was people like Les who basically gave me the confidence to think that I could perhaps do this. And then I had this goal, I have to get a novel published by I'm 30 or so I'm just going to give this game up because it's too hard, it's too heartbreaking, there's so much rejection in it. And you've got to have a really strong sense of self-belief to keep on going. I'd been doing it for about 12 years. I hadn't got anything published. And then I went to Antarctica and I wrote a story, a novel about that experience, poured my whole heart and soul into it. It's still my favourite novels out of all the books I've written, Shiva. Is that right? Is that right? Because yeah. sometimes I think I wonder whether authors go back and, and read their previous novels because sometimes, I, I mean, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, that writing is practice. Yes. And it, if that's the case, then your first book is not going to be as good as you fifth book, if you like, because you've practiced. But it's not always the case with writing. Isn't that right? It's always the case. And and in fact, for years after I wrote Shiver, I wrote that when I was about 28, I just thought it was like some little school project that you go back and look at years later and go, oh, that was awful. That was so embarrassing. But the last couple of years, I've actually flipped back to it and thought, you know what? It's all right. It's not bad. It's it's. It was written in a huge rush of seven months. It, it, I fell in love with someone in Antarctica very briefly and he was um, killed down there. My beautiful Martin. Oh, I can't show you. I was going to say if I'm on video, he's actually his picture is behind me on my desk. Um, but my beautiful Martin died and Shiva was my gift to him. And I still feel like as you read it, I mean, yes, it's very useful and all the rest of it, but there is so much love and passion and bewilderment in its lines that it just reads very authentically and very true and very honest. So, mm. no, it's it's not so bad. It's some of my other books after that that I've actually thought, oh, God, I was trying too hard. My third one, Love Song, it went to 60 drafts and it feels like rich chocolate mud cake now that you just can't. <laughs> get through it's just like so dense a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I want so, to go back to Shiva because I remember reading it at the time and my memory of it, I haven't read it recently, was that it was quite raw as well, like it was really yeah, putting yourself cool. out there. How did you get that published? Talk, talk to me about <laughs> that publishing process because that won't have been easy. Oh, that was the story in itself too. So, you know, I'd, I'd been trying to get a novel published for years. I wrote Shiva. I poured my heart and soul into it. It was about my boyfriend who'd had, who had been killed in Antarctica I sent it off to a literary agent in Sydney. She rejected it. I was devastated. I thought, well, that's it. That's the end of the writing dream. That's a clear signal to me that I'm not meant to do this. I have to do what my mother and father have always said and just be serious about my life and just focus on a serious job that gives you superannuation and all the rest of it. Devastated. At this stage, I was a newsreader at Triple J. And one morning, I don't know if anyone remembers the Mikey and Helen show, the breakfast show. I do. I loved it. So I I was very occasionally rostered onto the morning shift to read the morning news. You have to get up at, you know, an ungodly hour to read your first bulletin at 6 or 7 a.m., whatever it was. So I was reading that news bulletin and then at the end of it, Helen put on a song and she just looked at me and she said, Nikki, you don't want to do this, do you? And I went, no, how do you know? And she said, I can just tell. This is Helen Razor. And she said, you know, what do you really want to do? And I said, Helen, I just want to write, actually. That's all I want to do. I want to write books. That wonderful woman, and I've had great women throughout my career who just held my hand and pushed me forward. Helen said, right, Gemmel, I've got this publisher a vintage at Random House called Jane Corfman. I want you to send that rejected manuscript because I told her all about how I just had a rejected manuscript. She said, I want to send that manuscript to Jane and say I sent you, you know, no guarantees. We don't know what will happen with it, but just have another reader because it's important you don't just rely on one person's advice when you're trying to write. So I sent the manuscript of Shiva off to Jane Corfman I can still remember the phone call wow. 24 hours later. She was just like, I love it. I want to publish it. Don't you dare give it to anyone else. Don't you put it in for the Vogel. It's ours. It's ours. And that absolute joy, it had been like a, you know, maybe 13-year journey of trying to write and get things published to get to that point and I'll never forget it you know the gift of an amazing several amazing women in my life and that's what I feel like throughout my publishing career it's been incredible women around me just helping me through I mean it really was and I remember at the time that it sold quite well so it wasn't just a first book it it was I don't I can't remember whether it was a bestseller was it 
Um, yes, it was a bestseller. Oh, yes. it was a bestseller as well. There you go. And then you followed that up. Was the next one The Bride Street Bear? No, no, no. Then I followed it up with Cleve. So I had a trilogy. Oh, yes, Cleve, yeah. yes. I had a, a strong protagonist set in the desert. So yes. I had Shiver the Ice Desert, Cleve the Sandy Desert, and then Love Song, the chocolate cake one, um, set in um, a desert of exile in England where you're away from family and friends, that kind of thing. Then after that, I'd kind of written myself into a rut and I, I just felt I was really stale. I didn't know what to do next. And I was pregnant. And that's when the bride strip bear came. <laughs> I, I so, had my tell me about that. Tell oh, me. Oh, God. I tell me, because that is such a big story. And I know a lot of people out there want to know more. It's such a big story. And I still get migraine headaches to this, this day. It's like, my God, bring on the menopause so these headaches will just disappear now. But they were triggered by stress, all to do with um, the bride strip bear back in the day. So basically my first son was born. And as anyone knows who has had a child, you let it all hang out. You're suddenly, you're at the cold face of bodies and blood and pooing during childbirth and, you know, all, everything. You're the cold face of the lot. And it makes you just very honest and blunt and practical. And so um, I had this little baby. I was stuck at home suddenly after being a career woman my whole life until that point. And it was like, you know, I really still want to write, but I don't know what to write about and I don't really have much time. And then I thought, you know, I just, I just want to write about marriage and babies and men and sex in an excruciatingly yeah. honest way. Yeah. And the only way I could do it was in my baby nap times. So basically, you know, for an hour or two hours max during the day and during the night, I'd, I'd put him to sleep, my little Lockie to sleep, and then I'd race upstairs and I'd sit on the laptop and I'd bash out a chapter because basically if you read The Bride Strip Bear, you know, some chapters are like three or four lines long. That is dictated solely by my child's sleep patterns. So I started writing this book. I just had an idea. I wanted to write excruciatingly honestly about marriage and sex. But I was so careful. I was kind of protecting my little world, my beautiful husband who's still my husband, my baby who I knew would be growing up and, and thinking, what has mum done if I have my name to this book? And I just thought there's something egoless about giving birth too. It's just like, you know, you don't care anymore. Your life is someone else's. You're happy to kind of slip into the background. So basically about three months into the writing when it just wasn't working, it wasn't sinking. And I've had this, you know, problem all through my life, my writing life. Sometimes things just don't work and I can tell. Yeah. And so I tell this with my book, The Bride Strip Bear. I also had the title early on. I wasn't being honest enough because I was being too careful and cautious. And then I started reading Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, and she described anonymity as a refuge for women writers and as soon as I read that line, I thought, that's it. Of course. It's like a light bulb just went off in my head. It was just like, I can disappear from this. You know, no one has to know that it's me. And that was so liberating, so freeing. Suddenly it was like, oh, my God, I can say whatever I want. So oh, you had decided, good. you had decided whilst writing it that you were going to publish it under an anonymous. Yes. Is that right? Um, yes, yes. I really want to know how you sold that to the publisher. 
<laughs> just like, wow, that would have been a sell, a hard sell. Yeah. Well, it, it wasn't. It, it, it wasn't really at the time. It was just like because it, it was a year or so after Primary Colours, which had been, you know, set in the White House I yes. think, during years. That was by Anonymous. So I had a precedent and as soon as I decided it's going to have by Anonymous on the cover, it was just like, whoa. I, I love how you think big. <laughs> oh, so there was primary colours <laughs> and he was well, Nicky Gavel in Sydney, Australia. Yeah, yeah, no, all right. <laughs> actually, the opposite. I was actually thinking small because I actually thought, you know, I'm just a first-time mum at home. I want to write. I need to make some money because I just quit my job. I, I just um, decided, you know, I, I wasn't going to go back from maternity leave. So I, I needed to make a buck, basically. And I thought, if I can write this little anonymous book and sell it for, you know, I had a, a figure of £5,000. I was in London then. But if I can sell this for £5,000, that will buy me more time to write. So I went ahead and wrote it. Uh, after I made the decision that it was going to be anonymous, it came so fast and so strong strong and so sure, a bit like this non-fiction book that I've got coming up in a couple of months. Um, but um, just I had so much to say. So I finished it, gave it to my agent. He didn't think it would be a problem to sell it anonymous, so he did. There was an auction, you know, wonderful HarperCollins in London. They picked it up. None of us thought anything of it until... It, the book went to the Frankfurt Book Fair and suddenly journalists started to sniff around. And I can still remember I was on a bus coming home from the London Library where I used to write in London, back to my home, and I read this little news item about this book that had caused a sensation at the Frankfurt Book Fair, written anonymously. And then the killer line, there was all this speculation about who had written it and someone had speculated that it was written by Salman Rushdie's ex-wife. <laughs> and it's like, I, 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 I remember the hype at the time and I remember the speculation, oh, but I don't was, remember that bit. I don't know if I knew that. Yeah, yeah. So as soon as I read that, I thought, oh, my God. I'm, oh, my I'm, God. I'm, I'm sunk. I'm absolutely mm. sunk because of, because of that, they're going to find me and they're going to track me down. And lo and behold, they did in the most traumatic time of my life because basically, as you know, Cheryl, I'd, I'd been a writer, I'd been a literary mm. fiction writer before then. I'd written three other published books. So I had my career on track. I had control of my career. Suddenly the whole narrative just went, out the window and I lost control of how the media perceived me, of who I was, of what kind of books I'd write. I'd never written. I mean, from people were saying it's like an erotic book. It's, it's like, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey yeah. came, but it, they, they said it was like that book. For me, it was a literary look into vulnerability and honesty, but that was all lost in the whole process. It was devastating for me because suddenly I was seen as a writer who was just doing it for publicity or the rest of it. I still don't know who shocked me to the press. I don't know how that happened. I will probably go to my grave. In fact, I will. I've, I've reconciled myself with the fact I will go to my grave, not knowing if it was someone from my agent's office in London, my publishers there, someone from my London library circle of mates who were all writers themselves and had connections with newspaper journalists. I just don't know. Was it published first? When were you outed? I don't remember. 
and that was another problem. I was outed before the book was published. So the manuscript went to the Frankfurt Book Fair. I think I was outed maybe two weeks later. So the problem was it hadn't been edited. So then after that, I had to go back to the manuscript mm. of the book Bear, now knowing that my name was going to be associated with this book, that people would know it was me that had, had written this audaciously honest, excruciatingly honest book that I was so embarrassed to now put my name to. And I can still think of certain lines where I was like, I was crying. The editor, she came over to my house. She sat on the dining room table. We sat there for a day. It was back in the days of pens and papers. That's how you'd edit then. Mm. You had a big red pen and I'd be saying, I I can't, I cannot live with this line. I cannot have this line in that book with people knowing that it's me who's written that line. And I can remember her crying at one point and just saying, Nikki, The power of the book lies in the honesty. You have to keep this. You can't take out huge chunks of the book now. And I was saying, but I'm so embarrassed. It's, you know, my my husband's father, he was being Mm. rung up by the press. My my own parents, you know, who Mm. were becoming elderly at that stage. It was a bewildering time for not only me but my husband, parents, my family back in Australia. But the editor convinced me to keep those excruciating lines in the manuscript. I didn't take a single one out and I basically had to learn to hold my head high and own that book. But I wasn't able to do it until about 10 years afterwards. I I was in trauma with that book for certainly a good couple of years after it was published. It did go on to be a bestseller, didn't it? It did. It did. What I realised in the long run was it spoke to so many women. That's right. They they were just so grateful to to have a book like that there to make them feel normal about what they were feeling about sex and all the rest of it, I think. So I am grateful for it, but it took a terrible personal toll on me. And as I said to you, I, I still get migraine headaches. I, I end up in bed for three or four days vomiting all the rest of it. It's really hard to um, plan holidays or anything around it. But that that is a legacy from the Bride Strip Bear. I got my first vomiting migraine two days before it was published in the UK. Mm. And I'm I- sorry to hear that. It's nothing oh. worse. I've, I'm kind of surprised at the impact that it had on you because I do think that your writing is raw and honest all of the time anyway. Yes, yes. I've learned through the Bride Strip Bear to own that. And yeah, I think okay. I think that's a part of growing up too. You know, back back when I wrote Bride, I was in my early to mid um, 30s. I was a new mum. Mm. You know, it's, it's so much about image and control of who you are in the world and all the rest of it. And now as I've become older, it's just like, oh, look, who cares? This is me. Mm. And, mm. and, you know, there's power in honesty and honesty connects. And as a writer, I do want to connect. So I feel like, you know, every book since then, I've learned those lessons of the power of honesty and I've taken all that on board. But but it's it's weird to say, Cheryl, I'm actually quite shy, which surprises a lot of people. I don't actually enjoy being the face of my books. I, I look at the Elena Ferranti model and I think, oh, she did it. She mm. got away 
it. Mm. You know, she she was able to have a pseudonym and just she can just keep on writing. She doesn't have to explain herself or sell herself in any way. She can just exist in this little bubble of her and her writing and her books. As a writer, I really envy that. Well, I'm glad you've kept writing. Um, the book is called The Ripping Tree. Congratulations, Nikki. It's just been wonderful chatting with you today. Oh, Cheryl, look, thank you so much. It's a delight as always. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.